Good morning, everyone. Okay, so we are gathered for one last church. We're on the last one, number seven. Um, today, oh, I forgot to get my chart. Hold on, let me get this out. The one thing I want to do with you right off the bat this morning is a review of everything that we have learned basically concerning those first seven churches. Now I'm not gonna write this part on the board. It's just too lengthy to do and I don't wanna spend a lot of our time on that, okay? So first of all, what I wanna do is go back and review what you might want to do. This is the time when this um, chart uh, called Jesus's message to the churches, right? That you have already hopefully compiled little by little, week by week. We are now in that very last one, but I want you to back up and take a look, starting with Ephesus and, and follow all the way through with me. And I want you, and then if you'd like to, another thing you can do that I think is sometimes helpful when we're reviewing is just flip back to the, the, the studies when we were in them. So we started with the letter to Ephesus in lesson three on your homework. So if you wanna flip your book open to lesson three and just kind of flip through a little bit on what's there. I wanna start there and then move forward. And we wanna talk about each of the churches we've looked at so far and see what it is that we've actually learned about. On the whole, in your opinion, <laughs> I hope it's a biblical one. What did you see was the major lesson? What was the thrust of the lesson to the church at Ephesus? We know what they were told. I mean, I don't want to know technically, well, they were told they had left their first love. Okay, I want to know what does that mean to you and I today? What is God actually saying to us, the church? I want a personal relationship with you, and I have it, and you've let it yeah, you've let your personal relationship with me wane just a little bit. In other words, um, does it seem to be that it's not so much that he was criticizing them about things, except that what he was really trying to do was to refocus their attention, right? To reset a priority. Who is to be our priority? Jesus. So this has always been something interesting to me as I have been the teacher through all these years as, as in my Christian walk. But one of the things I've always tried to encourage people who have got real um, strong gifts for service or for um, ministering to people, they go to the hospitals, they, they bake meals, they set up tables, they go build stuff, they build houses, they build platforms for the stages at the church. They, you know, they're hands-on people, go, 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 go. Well, they got all these works they're doing. They're always involved in works and ministry. But what does Jesus really want as your first love? He wants him. He wants to be, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, right? And the second and most important thing is to love your neighbor as yourself. So love is to be central. And the only way that you really build up your understanding of love and what love is to look like is to look and to gaze into the face of the one who is love. The one who expresses love to us, one who demonstrated what real love looks like. And I can tell you that if you do not have, first and foremost, a foundation of knowledge in the word of God, you're never going to really know what love is. And you won't be able to actually exercise whatever your spiritual gift is 
effectively. So in other words, loving God is to be your highest priority. It's, it's number one on the agenda in your faith walk with God. No matter what else you think is important, whatever else you're involved in, number one is make sure that you are seeking after God, that you are seeking to know him better, and therefore then you can love other people, right? You, you'll love them better. That's your first order of business. Worship and fellowship with him. Um, Mark 12, 23 says it this way. Loving God is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you remember that verse? Yeah. Okay. So that was Ephesus. Number one, set God highest on your priority list. Number two is the church of Smyrna. Now, what did we learn about Smyrna? They were yes. Intense what was the reproof to that church? No reproof. This was a church that was suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their love for Jesus Christ, for the sake of their, their purity of walk and their commitment to him, right? So what was the exhortation then to that church since they were actually holding fast on everything? They were really doing everything well. And actually, if you, if you go back to Ephesus, uh, where your first priority is to be loved, what is how does God demonstrate love to us in scripture? What you know, first use of a word in scripture is its most uh, clearly defined definition, correct? And I know I haven't said that one in a long time, but that is the rule inductively. So, um, how did God or where did God in, put the very first mention of the word love in the Bible? Do you know? Exactly. Do you get it? So the first one he says, make sure you're loving me as a first priority. And then he follows it with Smyrna, who is a church that's suffering for the gospel, who's laying down their life for Jesus and for their faith in Jesus Christ. And actually, that is the definition of love. Definition of love is that your love is even to the point of sacrificing. It's sacrificial love. And that's what Jesus did for us. His demonstration to us of love is that he, for God so loved the world, what? His only that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So he sacrificed his own son. That's true love. And the church of Smyrna, they were truly loving. And there was no reproof. He says, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, O death, where is your victory? In Christ, all will be made alive. He has that. Remember, the whole emphasis in that second one was on what quality or characteristic of God. Do you remember? His power over death. Yeah, the fact that he had power over death, that he was the one who was the resurrected one. And he would also resurrect us. So in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. And throughout all of that, he says, in Christ, all will be made alive. Um, also, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That's in 1 Peter 4, 19. Someone look that up because that one was very, very interesting verse. I want to just cover that one very uh, <clears throat> briefly, but as just a final stamp on that letter to Smyrna as being the one that suffers. Do not fear suffering because Jesus has victory over death. Second Peter, first Peter. Uh, first Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let us let those also who suffer 
according to the will of God and trust their souls to a faithful creator in whom they trust. There you go. So that one I thought kind of brought together exactly what happened at Smyrna. He's, he's talking about those who are suffering and he says, listen, those who do it are truly entrusting their souls to a faithful creator. That faithful, faithful creator who has said, I will resurrect you. So don't fear suffering, right? That's kind of a scary one for us though, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, the next one was Pergamum. And what was the major uh, message to us there? Don't everyone speak oh, at once. False teachings. Okay, Fal about false teachings. What was going on in that church? They were allowing it. Yeah. Do you remember what was uh, located in that area? It was called, I know where you dwell. It's where what? Where Satan's throne dwells. And what, and what was that Satan's throne? It, and Zeus. Zeus, the temple of Zeus, which later got transported or relocated to Berlin, right, where Hitler himself held some of his, uh, I guess you call them campaign uh, rallies or whatever you want to call them. And, but he literally, from that Satan of throne, made his proclamations there about the, the solutions for the uh, for the Jews and things like that, which is really sad. But that just kind of gives us the backdrop, the flavor for what was going on in that particular church in that time. And you got to remember this too. Um, these churches, none of them are very far from one another. They're, they're really just a couple of hours drive max. Some of them are even closer than that. But they're just a couple of hours as you make that circuit route on uh, what was the old Roman mail route for that area of Asia Minor. Okay, and so there he tells them, um, the enemy is the devil, and it's Satan, his throne that dwells there. And then what does he tell them to do then? Repent. Yeah, absolutely. Repent. I mean, we, we see that one over and over with every church. You to repent, right? And then do what? Concerning his word, what are you to do? Jesus is going to make war with the sword of his mouth. And what are we to do concerning the word of God's mouth? Obey it and hold fast, right? Know what the word of God is and hold it fast. So again, we're back to the necessity for the believer to actually know the word of God. Can you ever hold fast the word of God if you don't know? How, how easy is it for you to sit in a room and have a conversation with a group of people, especially people who, who come across as if they're, they're knowledgeable on subjects, right? On particularly spiritual subjects. But how easy is it for you to get sucked in to what they're telling you? If you don't know what's true, how do you defend what is true, right? This is why it's so important for us as believers to take seriously our time in, in the word of God and our ability to, to learn and to know these things for ourselves. God wants us to hold fast Jesus's name and his word. We're to protect God's people from false doctrines and the deeds that lead them from full devotion to Christ and his word. Um, I had brought up to you when we were uh, studying that one that mentioned in the book of Acts to the Bereans. Do you remember what the, what the Bereans were commended for? For studying the word daily. Yeah. I mean, searching it out and yeah. seeing if what they're hearing is actually what 
Exactly. I kind of left because who's teaching the Bereans when this conversation comes up? Who was it that come to them and gave them a message from the word of God? Paul. (laughs) But you know what? They checked out Paul. So what does that tell you? You need to check everything out. This is why I love precepts so much. And any good Bible study that lays the word out right before you as you're going through it, because then you've got the authority of the word of God. You see exactly what it says. And then you actually are doing what the Bereans are. You're checking it out to make sure that what that teacher is saying is actually true. Because Go ahead. Well, they went to the word. They didn't just listen to the teacher. That's right. That's why we don't go to commentaries. There you go. Or listen That's to right. What other, what other men say, like, why study a book that's about what is written in the book? You're right. How many of you have found that that's, as you've been doing this, that you've gone to some commentaries or you've listened to pastors online and you've gone, oh, that's not right. <laughs> have you had that happen so far? I tell you, that happens to me like quite often and more often than I'd like for it to. Now, I'm not saying all the pastors out there are bad because they're not, but every now and then they'll come up with an interpretation on something. I'll go, that is not what that was. Okay. What you're saying is kind of like that open door thing that we talked about last week. You know, the open door in another book can mean evangelism, but in the, in the letter to that particular church, was it uh, Philadelphia? The open door was not talking about evangelism because that's not what that church letter was about. That's not what he was encouraging them in. So it had a different meaning in that particular case. And it went back to the first title, which was that he has what? The key of what? Of David. And that key is symbolically meaning what? Authority, Authority, power. I Hey, listen, I control the key to that door. No one's getting in. And if I unlock it, it's unlocked. And if I lock it, it stays locked. It's just talking about his power and authority and his sovereignty. So that open door and closed door were uh, descriptive of the fact that he was he was the one who holds the key of David. So again, that's just an example where you're going to find sometimes that commentaries and pastors, sometimes if they don't study carefully, you you know, they can draw a wrong conclusion on something. So it's so essential that we're doing the things that we're doing, really digging it out. Okay, Thyatira was the next church, number four, right down the middle. What did you see in Thyatira? Again, uh, idolatry and immorality. But what, even though it was alluding to the fact that the result of what was going on there was idolatry and immorality, what was what were they being rebuked for? Who was it that they were allowing Jezebel? So what was their? They weren't ruling and exercising the authority. There you go. And boy, I wish some of our other students were here right now because there's one in particular we talked. I've had. Oh, that they weren't um, ruling and exercising the authority they had, so they were allowing right. stuff that they knew oh, was wrong, and they just didn't tolerate In other words, you are to judge and to rule over the, house, over the church of God and in the household of faith, and especially among believers, you, you know, what does it say? Judgment begins at the household of faith. That's our first um, 
clue that Jesus is not saying judge not least ye be judged, which is what everyone likes to throw out, right? But that's out of context. In what Jesus has always said is, is number one, you will know a tree by its fruit. Mm -hmm. And the implication there is what? Look at someone's fruit and do what? Make a judgment, right? Look at their life and say, are they or aren't they in the faith? Are they or aren't they obeying God's word? You do it by examining their life. Now, it doesn't mean we're to run around and be critical of one another, but it does mean you're to discern. You're to use wisdom, right? So in this church, it's judge and rule over the church, uh, rule over those in your church who call themselves believers and do not uh, tolerate false teaching and immorality in your church. Don't allow a Jezebel and don't allow the people to fall into the false teaching of whatever it is that that Jezebel has brought into your church. Um, again, I, I just have to bring it up because he, he wasn't rebuking that it was a woman teacher. He was rebuking what was being taught, mm -hmm. right? And he said in there, um, uh, one of the verses that we went to again was Corinthians. Don't you just love Corinthians? That whole first and second Corinthians is loaded because the whole thing is written as correction and instruction to the church, how the church is to behave. So that's what everything in that, that those two books are. But he says in first Corinthians five, and it's going to be verse six and 13. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. So what are you supposed to do? Well, do you remember the wicked man who was having a relationship with his father's wife? Interesting, right? Kind of gross too, huh? The idea that, it, I mean, we're assuming this means it was his stepmother, maybe, right? We're hoping, That's, we're hoping <laughs> right? We're hoping that. And I mean, I would, I would hope. Mm. Uh, but in any way, he says, but you're concerning that wicked man who's in your church, he's coming to church week after week, he's sitting in the pew, maybe he's even doing little bits of work around the church to, you know, be a minister in some way, and nobody is saying a thing to him, and he's remaining in your midst, and he's calling himself what? A Christian. I belong to Jesus Christ, and I belong to this church. And that church sees what he's doing. They all know what he's doing and no one is saying anything. We're back again, judge and rule in the church. Remove that wicked man from your midst. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 5. Okay, next church, we're moving fast. I feel like it's lightning. Is this helpful? Is this being good help? Okay, Sardis, what did we learn in Sardis? Pardon? They are slumbering. Now, this is very interesting. They are slumbering, and he's saying to them, wake up. And then the exhortation was pertaining to, to two basic things. What, what was he telling them to strengthen? What they had received and what they had heard. So what had they received and what had they heard that they were slumbering over? The word of God. What word was it? The word of God, the gospel message. And he's saying, you're slumbering in this. Yeah, you, uh, you've kind of heard it. It takes me back to Hebrews chapter four, where it says they had not united faith uh, with what they had heard. They had heard it, but they hadn't united faith with it. And so in this case, what God was offering to the church in Sardis, uh, the identity that he was given to them was the seven spirits of God, remember? Mm -hmm. And what did we determine that 
just symbolically meant the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's that's all it means. It means the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits of God. So what they were, he was telling them concerning the Holy Spirit was what? lacking it you are lacking it you do not have it and you need to wake up because you're missing it here and so he says you have a name that you are alive but you are in fact what dead so this is a church who thinks they're saved but they're not wow i tell you what these are messages for us today there are there are too many people in our lives who do think they are saved and they run around and, and they'll claim it till their dying breath but you can observe their life you see no power of the holy spirit in their life you know they're not actually receiving by faith what they are hearing they're hearing it they're sitting every week in the pew but they're not actually receiving it and then living it out because that's the evidence of true faith faith is that you, you must live out what you say you believe, right? Um, so in Hebrews 4, 2, it says, unite faith with what you have had, and then you will receive the Holy Spirit, right? Now, last week, Philadelphia, we kind of mis- mentioned it again. What was their reproof? Was there a reproof to no, that church? No. No reproof. So there's two churches, Smyrna, and Philadelphia, that there are no reproofs. The first one, Smyrna, was the one who was suffering, right? And what about this one? What was going on with them? Who was who were they coming up against, and, and what were they commended for? They were coming against the Judaizers. Yeah. Who said they were believers and were trying to really infiltrate the church. Yeah, actually, they, they were calling themselves Jews, and Jesus says they say they are Jews, but they are not. Now, what did we see concerning them? That God, God calls them liars, right? So they're lying, and then he says, but I know your deeds. And what were their deeds? What have they done? What had that church in Philadelphia done? Even up against all these people saying, you are liars. God doesn't love you. No, you don't belong to to God, God the Father. We, the Jews, belong to God the Father. We are the inheritors of the things that God has made promises to us concerning. Not you. You guys have gone off into something else, right? You heretics. Jesus committed acts of blasphemy. We hung him on a cross for that. And that's what they were up against was these people who were liars and they were persevering through it anyway, because they were what kind of a church? How big? Little. They were a very small church and they did not have a a lot going for them in that regard. They didn't have the power and the prestige or the position to be able to come up against these people. And yet they were persevering, right? You have kept my perseverance so what is what does it mean my perseverance faith uh, faith in well, what jesus had, had done at the cross right because when it Je- when it says my perseverance is speaking of jesus's perseverance mm-hmm. and how had jesus pers- how had jesus persevered there you go um, yeah all you have to all you have to do is look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you go, oh, my perseverance, meaning Jesus's perseverance. You have kept 
my perseverance. So last week I read from you, from Hebrews to you, right? Hebrews 12. It was also part of your homework lesson. I was glad to see that after I made the, the time for it. But uh, set your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Do you see that's where that phrase, my perseverance, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That's our example is what Jesus did. This is where he's commending even Ephesus or Smyrna when they, that they were persevering through suffering and trials and Philadelphia who was being lied to and told, no, you're not, a, you don't belong to God. God does not love you. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what they were being told. And he says, he was commending them. You are persevering my perseverance. You're enduring your cross. And I love it. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on it. I really feel like we should have done a lot of those verses on pick up your cross and follow me, right? I, it would have been good to do, I think, Mark, maybe a few more Mark verses. Um, but Philadelphia then was about liars. Lie, they lie. But I know your deeds. You have kept my perseverance. And guess what? I do love you. I do love you. I will keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on those who dwell on the earth. And who are those who dwell on the earth? Unbelievers. Basically, it's unbelievers, right? And what we did uh, last week in that last column was go through and list all those references in Revelation within the context of the book. We defined who dwells upon the earth that God is going to bring an hour of testing upon. And so we came to conclude that that was speaking about the day, the days of tribulation. That was that last time. And it's not just the hour of testing. It's the hour of the testing. So it's a specific test in a specific time. And the definition said it's coming upon the whole earth. It, it's not little persecutions that are around the world in various places. This is going to be a specific time when the whole earth is going to be under a persecution and it's a persecution that God himself will bring. So that were, that was it. Ephesus, loving God is to be your highest priority. Smyrna, do not fear suffering because Jesus has victory over death. He's going to give you that resurrection. Pergamum, you're to hold fast Jesus's name protect the church from false doctrines, right? Thyatira, judge in and rule over the church. You have got to stop backing away from calling out sin in the church and calling out false teachers. We've got to get back on board with purging those things out of our churches. Sardis, wake up and repent, strengthen the gospel that you have heard because you have not yet received the Holy Spirit. That's what was going on in Sardis. And Philadelphia, no reproof to them. Hold fast to he who is holy, true, and holds the key of David. Okay, that's our review for the, the churches. Now we're ready to move into what we did for our homework this week. Okay, all righty. Let's talk about our key words. <clears throat> Oh, that's a wiggly line there. I'm sorry. Um, actually, we're only going to have a couple of. It's just this whole thing is going to be on just on Laodicea. Um, the first part of this is going to be what their condition is.
Laodicea was probably one of the sadder books in, I think, letters in the seven that came to us. Um, tell me what kind of key words you found. They, they, this particular one was really tricky, wasn't it not? Because it was like almost everything in there had to be looked up as far as a, a word study was concerned. But then you needed to kind of hone in and weed out and say, but which ones of these are actually major subjects? What, there's going to, this is one of those where there's a lot of words that you needed to observe and, and come to know better, but they were supporting a major thought. That was a little bit tougher, I thought, to do on this. Um, it, basically, just starting with the name of Jesus alone, because Jesus is always key, correct? Yes. Key word, major, major person. Um, how is he called in this particular letter? Amen. Okay, the amen. The faithful and true witness. The, fa the, the faithful and true witness. And the beginning of creation of God. And the beginning of the creation. I flipped mine around. That's why I had to pause it. <laughs> no, mine says true and faithful. <laughs> and it matters. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Yes. Okay. So here's what you could have done, y'all, just so that you know this. You didn't need to necessarily mark the amen, the true facial witness in the beginning of creation as distinctive words, but rather all of them should have been marked as who? Jesus. Very good. Oh, you guys did it. I'm so proud of you. Because that would have simplified your marking and all of the, the confusion on your observation worksheet, as a matter of fact. Okay. Um, okay. So the, those being key, what else was key uh, in this letter? to Laodicea. Hot and cold. Okay, hot and cold. Hot and cold, however, supports lukewarm. what? Lukewarm. That they are lukewarm. So is the emphasis on the hot and cold or is the emphasis on the lukewarm in this letter? Lukewarm. The lukewarm. See, there's one of those tricky ones. <laughs> yes, yes, hot and cold actually defines what Jesus is speaking of when he says you are lukewarm. And so it's a supportive statement but the key subject is about the fact that they are lukewarm okay so keyword lukewarm how can he be why was he um commending it he wasn't committing he's in that case it, he was rebuking it mm -hmm. right now we, all we're doing is listing what keywords are coming up that's okay so we're just noting what are the key things that we need to look at okay so lukewarm became a key word or key subject what else? There were a lot of contrasts. Wait, okay. A lot. All right. And so I didn't know, I mean, I listed them as contrast, but I didn't know how to pull the key word from a lot of the... Bingo, Susan, because that's where it's interesting in this book because, so what you had to do then was, was kind of hone it down to figure out what is it that he's actually contrasting since there are so many descriptive words and they're on opposite sides of each other, but who is he actually, what is he actually contrasting then? How, well, I, I came up with like how they viewed themselves yes. versus how God is viewing them. Very good. That's really it. You say that you are, and then he says, but I say. 
that you are and you do not know that you are yeah. right yeah. so that was the real contrast is how they viewed themselves and how jesus actually says no that's what you think but this is what you really are and you don't even know it right so there's our major con contrast and so therefore susan all those words like miserable poor and so forth the, the all those wretched miserable naked blind all those go as supports underneath the fact that this is what you think you are and that's really the major subject does that make sense yeah yeah this one was a little tricky because all these keywords and the other thing is is kay didn't really um emphasize that part of it really but what she did do was she had us look up all those keywords so then it made you feel like oh all these are keywords well after a while you got the whole chapter marked right i don't know it's pretty it's pretty sad when we can't quite figure it out but okay so who you are versus who you think you are what jesus says you are versus who you think you are you say and god says okay um what else in here is key? Don't be afraid. Even if it's not right, we'll just, we'll talk through it. Okay. These are the things. Now he wants them to be rich, but the contrast then is with what's wrong. Okay. Something school bus. It's a squirrel, squirrel, butterfly. Okay, I get it. I did the same thing. Sorry, I noticed though. Okay, um, now what we were talking about, we were talking about oh, poor and rich, rich and poor. Okay, we're in verse um, 17. 17. Okay. You say that I'm rich, have become wealthy and have needed nothing, but you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So actually, again, we're back to that contrast statement. You say, but I say. What I found interesting about that contrast in River is that they focus on themselves in two ways, rich and wealthy. And then when we focus on what the contrast of that from Jesus. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, right. But you're not. You're, you're poor, not, you're miserable, you're, you're, you're naked. You're wretched, you're miserable. You're, you're, you're blind, you're naked. You're yes. Blind. Yes. You're, so you're totally in deficit to everything that you actually need, right? But you think you're fine. And uh, this ties in so well with the historical understanding of this particular city as well, right? I can see y'all did homework this week. <laughs> I am so happy. <laughs> Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. Okay, um, let's look at, okay, you say, but you are, uh, you see, um, I saw a major contrast between naked and white car garments as well. Did y'all catch that one? All right. Um, they, they made black, beautiful black garments. Mm -hmm. And so that should, all, that should just be another one of those descriptors that so fits where they are. Yeah, because of the historical understanding of, of what was going on. It hasn't been beautiful in these letters from Jesus to these churches, how he, at each specific location, he addresses everything they absolutely understand. He doesn't talk about something you know you know i always laugh at these pastors who like to use sports as their analogy at some point but i'm not a sports person i am clueless i'm going uh-huh you know i don't get it now if i'm in a group of 
all, all women who are sewers, I can use sewing analogies because they all identify. Jesus, when he writes to each church, he picks what he knows is, is knowable to them in their location. And he's always, Jesus, when he was in his earthly ministry, did the same thing. He would be out walking with them and he'd say, look at the birds of the air, how they don't gather and they don't fret and I take care of them. And, you know, I mean, so he would, he would point out the things that were right there before him. He would hold a loaf of bread and say, I am the bread of life. Or he would, he would look at a door and he'd say, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am that door. Or he would look at the sheep, right? And he would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they would understand in that day of preparation for the Passover lamb to be slaughtered, that he would talk about that lamb and that he is the Lamb of God. So I just love that this is the way God always speaks to us. And, and this is the uniqueness, I believe, in our personal walks with God. When we open the word of God and we begin to read and there's something almost without fail, there is something in there that directly meets our personal need. We see something and we go, oh, I, I relate to that. I understand what that's saying. Now, it doesn't mean that there are times we open the word of God and go, I don't know what's been <laughs> I have any idea what's going on here, <laughs> right? That, because those are other times. I mean, um, I, I also love that God's word likes to challenge us. Do you love me? Do you really love me? Will you pursue me? Will you seek after me? Will you dig out the, the, the truths of me? You know, that one church had the deep truths of Satan, right? And, but do you know the deep truths of God? How are you going to attain to those? How are you going to reach for those and, and receive them? How are you going to get to a place where you all of a sudden your eyes are open and you go, oh, I get it now. And then there's this overjoying delight. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I sat at my computer in tears, you know, just going, thank you, God, for showing me that, for explaining that to me, for making that understood to me, because God delights in our pursuing him. That's that first love to Ephesus. Do not forsake your first love. You are to pursue after me, and that's what he, he longs for us to do. So these letters are written, you're right, in exactly, who was I talking to you about this? Um, exactly to the, the specific point and talk to them about the things that they can actually relate to, okay? Uh, so the garments is what we were talking about, right? And the contrast to those white garments, though, is the fact that he's telling them concerning, them, concerning themselves, not that they weren't black garments, but what? Naked. They're naked. They're naked. And naked is a really interesting subject, by the way. What is the nakedness that God is speaking about that you need to be covered with white garments? And believe me, that could be a whole week's homework lesson right there. And we didn't do barely anything on it, but I wanted to. I was, what about that um, last verse 20 toward the end? Behold, what? I stand at the door and knock. And what is the contrast? Yeah, you have to open it. I will come into you. I'm outside the door right now and I'm knocking. I'm asking you to open the door, but guess what I'm not gonna do, Jesus says. I'm not gonna shove that door down and come in after you. I'm not charging in after you. 
I've already done my work for you. I've, I've died on the cross. I've given you my word throughout the ages. I've given you the prophets and all the, all the scriptural writings. I've given you now the New Testament. Everything is there and available for you to find me. And I stand at the door politely as a gentleman, and, and I knock. And I wait for you to open the door. And so there's a contrast there. I stand at the door and knock, and the contrast, I will come into you if you open that door. Okay, so that kind of gives us the basics of key words and subjects that are going to come up for us this morning. So let's just start out by looking again at the warnings and the instructions. This is the condition that Laodicea is being addressed concerning them in Laodicea. This one is the strongest warning of all the letters to, to the churches from God is to this church at Laodicea. It's a very strong warning. So there's a warning to them. Um, and he said, and instructions, he says that the warning, it says, you say. So there's that very first one. And what did you say? I am what? Rich. Rich. What else? I have need of nothing. <clears throat> I have. Okay, I have become wealthy. Wealthy. And I have need of nothing. Okay, so that's in chapter three, verse. Uh, what verse is that? 17. 17, thank you. Right on my chart. Okay. Now, the contrast then, and that there is, this is actually a direct contrast to what? What you say, but you do not know, right? You do not know that you are. So it's really, you say, but what you really are. <laughs> right? And what are they? Wretched. <clears throat> Wretched. We're going to write these down so that we can then go through them one by one. Uh huh. Poor. Blind. This is really interesting. Okay, so this is your day one's homework, by the way. You're on page 86 and 87 in your, in your thing. Let's start, though, with talking about a little bit of the historical background on this. Uh, what do we know? If you, when you're talking about they're saying, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Just on that one subject, what did you learn about the, the Church of Laodicea? Prosperous, prosperous. They thought they were on top of everything. Were they? No. Well, they weren't in God's eyes, but were they in the eyes of the world? Oh yeah. Do you remember what happened in the in the last church, uh, uh, Philadelphia? They had those huge earthquakes. Well, guess what? What those earthquakes spread throughout all of that area, all of that region, and a lot of these places had to do a lot of rebuilding. But you know what Laodicea said when the uh, council in uh, Greece or in Rome rather wanted to come and give them help. We don't need no it. thanks. Yeah, no good. thanks. We got it. We're going to write a check. Good. Yeah, we'll, we'll just write a check. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. We don't need your money. I'm like, oh, if only, right? If only you and I could say that. That would be nice. But this, so they were wealthy. As a matter of fact, what do we know about their, their wealth? What were they known for? 
Okay, they, they were known for that, but concerning finances and money, what were they known for? They were a financial center. They were actually the banking center of that entire region. They were located or situated at the junction of three imperial roads. And so because these all three of these roads all kind of converged in one spot, they became the, the central banking hub for all of that uh, Asia Minor area. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, we've seen some of the other churches where they were also wealthy. They were wealthy because they had a lot of things going for them. But this this particular church, their city was the financial banking center of that region of the world at that time. Okay, so that tells you why then, because they were the banking center, it's kind of like Name a place that you know in America where people move to because they're all so rich. California. Okay, it's somewhere somewhere in California, right? Yeah. New York City. New York City. Um, uh, where is that one that's, that they always live that they're always so rich? I'm trying to remember Manhattan. the name. Pardon? Well, yeah, man. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, that's true too. Martha's but Vineyard. there you go. That was what I was trying to think of. Martha's Vineyard. You know, everybody moves there. Why? Because they were so wealthy, right? And um, I would never be allowed to live there. I might be able to be a maid, show up and clean someone's house. But the whole the mindset then of these kinds of people. Um, you know, they go to a store or they go to purchase something or if they needed anything, do they ever, are they ever actually in need? No, they, they have need of nothing. They are so rich and they have become so wealthy. They are not dependent on anyone. And no matter what the major catastrophe is, they have the finances to, to handle it. So that's kind of the mindset of this particular church. And Jesus says, do you not know that you are? And then he goes through this list here. So what is it that he says they are? So let's talk about these word studies because these were fun. You did word studies on all of these, right? Wretched, 5505, 5505 rather, 5,005, right? And what does it mean? Deplorable. Deplorable, I love that. Deplorables. I've heard that one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wretched. They are actually deplorable. Any others? Conflict with the spiritual laws and laws concerning the flesh. Okay. Is the same as being deformed. I'll say it again. Is the same as being deformed. Okay. It's really. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't see that one. She says it's the same as being lukewarm. Wretched is all is similar. It's a synonym or something to being lukewarm. Although I didn't see that one in my homework, but that's interesting. Okay. In a deplorable state of distress or misfortune. There you go. Pitiful or pathetic. All right. I love that. Pathetic, pitiful. Despicable. 
despicable, you despicable, deplorable and despicable Stewie, the despicable me, right? <laughs> okay, now, I don't know that you did it, and it really wasn't in your homework, but when he says you do not know that you are these things, did anybody look up that you don't know? You do not know? I want to give this to you because I thought this was, you do not know, this is number 1492, and it means you do not comprehend. Uh, you cannot tell or you do not perceive. Cannot tell, you just don't, you don't perceive. You don't have a clue. You are clueless. Yeah. We're getting up with a lot of movie names today, aren't we? <laughs> clueless, right? Okay, so okay, so you do not know because you don't comprehend. You don't know because you can't even tell. You do not know because you don't perceive these things. You don't have eyes to be able to comprehend any of this. So you are wretched. You're in a wretched state. You are pathetic. You are deplorable and you are pitiful. <laughs> okay, and then miserable. This is interesting because think of this as this is Jesus. He's saying to this church, you are pathetic, you're deplorable, you don't even understand it, you're clueless about it, miserable. Yes? 1652, am I correct? Yes. All right. Also pitiful, again, pitiful, and you did you say miserable? Yes. Okay, miserable. Uh, that's interesting. Miserable, which is you're miserable, but you're it's it's the kind of miserable misery though. You're the, in a state of misery where people really pity you. You're to be pitied. I have pity for you because you're in such a miserable state. You don't even know it. You're clueless about the fact that you're in that place. You really think you're rich and you have need of nothing. I'm look, Jesus is looking at them. You're pitiful. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He didn't say that one either. But yes, she said the scum of the earth. <laughs> kind of a little different. Attitude, but yes. And then poor. Yes. This reminds me exactly of um, missionaries I know in Dubai and how they describe the wealthy clients and how all the luxury, the luxury of, the world. of the world they can have anything they want and they are so miserable. you know this is interesting because when my kids when we lived overseas my kids would go to um not dubai they went to oh it's, it's missing my but another one of those middle eastern countries when my kids went on school trips they took their passports and got on airplanes <laughs> and they're they're they went to lodges and um, it wasn't Dubai. Oh, my daughter was here. She could tell me. But anyway, they would go to these different places and they were so, so rich. They would say, mom, you would not believe the, the schools and the, the props. Like one of the things they went there for was for a um, art. Uh, I don't know what it had to do with theater. They were doing um, uh, plays right? They actually did Greece, right? So they went there to do Greece as an art thing for the school, for our school. And so they went there. 
but she said they had the whole they had the whole stage the the old car they had all the props they had i mean they had everything there they had the ferris wheel out there they had the whole thing she said they are so wealthy it's beyond comprehension it's like what you said and and for believers who are poor who who are living poor, especially, and they're looking at that. And those who are that wealthy and are not sharing to reach out to others around them, it does make you, your stomach turn quite a bit, you know? It just, again, However, shows you where they what are. do you do when you have that feeling about not sharing? I mean, I see people out in the, out when we're driving mm -hmm. and they have these signs, help me. Yeah. And we're not helping them. Right. Well, that's a, that's a very lengthy conversation to be had because there's a, there are, so, there are sides on, there are subjects to be had on both sides. It has to be a full spectrum conversation. There are some who only want the handout, but they don't really want help. And there are a lot of people, Christians understand that our job is to not hand them a fish, but to teach them to fish. That's our job. As teach we, them to To teach fish. them to fish. They can take care of themselves. To help them to become self-sufficient so that they're not dependent on others. That's the greatest gift you can give a person who's poor. So what, I know, so yes, there are people who hand them money and you, I see it all the time. So there are people doing it. And I understand what you're saying, but they but we have no that's not what's being talked about here here what we're looking at is the spiritual condition of a person who thinks they're rich and they don't need anything but jesus is looking at them saying no you're poor and pathetic that what you're talking about is a whole nother subject matter so okay. we're gonna have to skip it no, i'm sorry katie i don't know if anybody else has noticed this but there's five items listed there uh-huh in God's word, I've seen over and over and over again the concept of seven representing completion. And three and five and one. All these numbers have symbolic. Yes, they sure can. They're not, they're not seven, but they're getting close. No, but five <laughs> is also is also considered a, a number of completeness. So is three. Three represents the whole like the Holy Spirit, Father, mm -hmm. Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of uh Especially in a book like Revelation, symbolisms are there, whether you, depending on how far you want to go with them, I don't try to get too wrapped up in all of them all the time, but it doesn't hurt to pay attention and notice them. Certainly when God gives a list of five, he's saying, you're not just all these things, you are holy, these things. This is, you are completely in that state, Right. But do you have a good idea of why? Yes. Naked. Yes. We'll get there. Hold on. Got to get to the word study. Okay. So let's start with poor, though. What? How? What is poor? What is meant by poor? I thought another word was needy. Mm -hmm. Needy is they have need of nothing, but they are really needy. Yeah. Also, the word lacking came up, right? Mm -hmm. So beggary, needy, lacking. Now, what's interesting here is when we're talking about this, what we've not touched on yet is, are we talking about physical things or are we talking about spiritual things? 
spiritual. spiritual. So Jesus is not talking about handing the money. He's not saying you are not without money because were they without money? No, these people were rich. They had all they needed. And it was true. Nobody needed to hand them a, a Christmas card full of money because they weren't be that excited about it. Right. One of my references said that that word poor meant destitute christians or jews and eternal riches. there you go what they're destitute of what they're poor of is those christian things which they need and which is where we're heading here in in getting all of this what about blind 5185 uh this one was interesting because we all know what blindness is blind means you're blind means you can't see right but it did, but Kay did bring up to our attention, there are actually two kinds of blindness that can be implied, right? What are the two kinds of blindness that are implied here? Can be what? Can be what? Physical and, Physical? Spiritual, and spiritual. Physical or can be spiritual. And so what we have to ask ourselves again is, which one is, is the implication here? When Jesus says, you say this about yourself, but I'm looking at you here. And when Jesus looks at you, how is he looking? Is he looking for the physical things? No. No, he's looking for the spiritual blindness. Okay, and then. That word, no, they don't know it because they're blind. Right, exactly. To not comprehend, you cannot tell, and you don't perceive. Why? Well, we looked at a lot of verses on that about the, even we even looked at the blind man in chapter, uh, in John chapter nine, I think it was, right? Um, okay, naked is 1131. And what and that meant to what? Uh-huh. It says to to be bare, and then it said metaphorically. It's to lay bare. Right? Or lay open. Okay. All right. So th those are the technical definitions, but that's just the beginning of your work then, isn't it? The next thing he says to them um, is you are to do what in verse 18? So this is, you say, I am rich. What you do not know is that you are these things instead. And then he says, I advise you to do what? Buy, buy what you need from me. Buy from me. That's right. So from Jesus, we are to buy. I advise that you buy from me. And what does he want them to buy? Gold. Gold. Is the first one? Second one? White garments. White garments. And the third one? have Why those three things? So now we're back to the historical background on this, right? Tell me what you saw historically about about Laodicea. Why do they want to get gold from him? Why do they want to get white garments from him? And why do they, does, does he say get ISAF from him? Well, that the three main uh, interested, so therefore they knew what he was talking about. They could relate to their financial world, in the banking industry, yeah. their wool production, and their, and their uh, medical production. Interesting. Like 
Yeah, an interesting thing about the wool, right? Did you catch on to the interesting fact about what their wool was about? What kind of wool was it? What color was it? Black. It was black, soft, glossy, and black. So their garments were what color? A lot of black in that city, which would have been my favorite place to live because I like to wear black too. But, but so they were wealthy and how did they become wealthy? Because of the industry for one of this specific kind of wool that they grew there or that they harvested there off their sheep. And it was like pristine wool, you know, it's kind of like the cashmere sweaters that we all want to have, you know, that are itchy. <laughs> um, yes. Isn't the culture in the Middle East very much based on shame and honor? And all that are listed there of the five, don't they indicate a bottom line shame? Um, yeah, for sure, before Jesus, certainly. Yes, absolutely. And because considering these people, how they felt about themselves, mm -hmm. if you looked at this on the whole, what characteristic would you give it if you had to give it one title for a characteristic? Self-sufficient. Self-sufficient? Or they believed they were self-sufficient. Yeah. Okay, self they were self-sufficient. And what is the what is the characteristic? Arrogance. Arrogance. Pridefulness. Mm -hmm. Does that does that sound like something that contrasts with what we saw last week? What did we see last week with the church before? Um, mm -hmm. and he said he's oh I gotta pull it out because I can't remember Pergamum. Philadelphia. And he says to them, oh, remember, you have a little power. And that little power is humility. They were humble. They understood their need for God. And God commended them for that. In that humility, God commended them. You have a little power. You've kept my word and you've not denied my faith. And so God was commending them for that. But this group, huh? Pride, what a contrast from last week to this week, huh? Um, okay, very good catch. Nice job, uh, Diane. Okay, so we want gold, we want white garments. Oops, somebody's got the wrong sheet here. And we want ISAP. So one of the things that had to do with the white garments, the contrast was that in, the, in that particular city, they had the black wool that was grown there. And that was one of the things that got them so wealthy to begin with. And then the last one of was the ISAP. What do we know about the ISAP? They made fine ISAP medicinally. Unbelievably valuable ISAP. And this was one of those things that what I guess apparently they used the stones of their local area and they would grind those stones and in them were mineral uh, properties that healed the eyes of all kinds of eye issues, which I thought was really cool. You know, I can remember just recently having a conversation with someone about uh, medicines. You know, what did we used to do in the olden days? I'm going, we used the natural herbal earth that God gave us. We, we had leaves, we had plants, we had 
we had crushed up bugs for Pete's sake. I mean, we, we used all kinds of things in these old, old timey remedies that people used to make. And I said, God has always given man a knowledge of medicines. It's always been around, it's been around from the garden, right? As soon as they sinned and there were thorns and thistles and they was, there was an op uh, opportunity for them to be bit by something or, or, or stung by something or whatever. There were medicinal things there that got taught Adam and Eve right there in the garden how to pr provide for themselves. So here's one of those examples where they had come to learn that the minerals in those stones in their local area were good for ISAP. So he says, I advise that you buy from me gold. What kind of gold? Yeah. What did, what did you learn about that? Refined by fire. Takes out all the impurities. Okay, removing of all the impurities. We looked at a couple of verses, right? We looked, um, uh, I think, well, one of the ones I remember and I put on my sheet here was 1 Peter 1. Did, did you see that one? Gold refined by fire. What does 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9 say? <coughs> Someone look that up and read it out loud. Such trials show the proven character of your faith which is much more valuable than gold. Gold that was tested by fire, even though it is passing away and will bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You have not seen him, but you love him. You do not see him now, but you believe in him. And so you rejoice with him, indescribable and glorious joy, because you are attaining the goal of your plan, the salvation of your Wow. So in this case, the analogy is that gold is like what is, you know, that this, what is better than gold in that analogy? Faith. And faith is refined by fire. It's more precious than gold. It results in praise, glory, and honor. And it also results in the salvation of your soul. So in this case, he's saying, I advise you buy from me gold, gold meaning faith, your faith. I want you to come to me and have faith refined. And it result, it's more precious than gold. That's amazing. He's talking about faith there. So this case, this gold is speaking about faith. That's First Peter 1, uh, 7 to 9. Okay. All right. Then the next one was white garments. So what is the significance there about the white garments? The contrast is that you're not naked, right? <laughs> I got to get my Bible out. This one was very interesting. This one's a little uh, tougher concept if you've not been in the Word of God a lot. But where is the first mention in the Word of God about nakedness? Adam and Eve. That's right. What had Adam and Eve done that made them realize their nakedness? Sin. Their sin. Before that, they had been in the garden naked and what? 
unashamed. They had no clue that they were naked even. They did, that concept was not there for them. But once they sinned, what was the first thing they grabbed? Big leaves. Grabbed those tree leaves, tried to cover themselves with leaves in order to be covered in the presence of God because they were afraid. They understood that they had disobeyed God. And they knew that basically they had disappointed him by breaking God's law. This was a law, by the way, that was the very first law was do not eat of that tree. You may have all of the others, but there's one that I'm designating you shall not eat of. And so when they ate of that tree, now they had recognition that they were naked. What did God do to cover them? He sacrificed an animal. So in order to sacrifice an animal, what it was that the first event of? The shedding of blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So when that animal was shed, uh, was killed in the garden by God, then God covered them with the, with the garments that came from that animal. The animal clothing then became their first real garments. Before that, they tried to cover themselves and they were still naked and ashamed. So the, the principle, the spiritual principle is in this then is what Jesus is saying. I advise you buy from me garments. You cannot provide for yourself anything that will cover your shame. You will always be naked before me if you don't buy from me what's necessary. Yes. But I still have to know why is nakedness a sin? Nakedness, this is, this is talking, actual nakedness, like standing in your bathroom naked is not, but what God did is he gave us the knowledge of that as a reminder. It's the thing, it's kind of like um, when Adam and Eve sinned and out in the world, he said, okay, from now on, you will um, till the soil by the sweat of your brow. There will be thorns and thistles and um, there's going to be things that it's going to be difficult, a difficult work for you. This was to be a reminder. Childbearing became the other one, right? That was a consequence for Eve, correct? That she would have pain in childbirth. Before that, there was no pain in childbirth. So these were to be reminders. Your nakedness and your being aware that you're naked, again, is God's reminder to you that you need, you need him to cover you your clothing. The only way that you are appropriate in the presence of God, the only way you have access. Do you remember the wedding feast that we looked at last week where it said, or I think it was this week even, um, if you enter into the wedding feast and you're not properly clothed, what happens? Cast that man out. He's not properly clothed. What is the proper clothing before the Lord? His blood, the white linen that you receive from him, which is made white, how? By the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's why. It's all symbolic pictures. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's really interesting concept if you haven't ever looked at it before, because you're going to see the subject of nakedness come up often in scripture. There's a lot of stories you read it. All of a sudden they say, and he was naked and blah, 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 blah. But they don't then go on to explain. And that was really bad. <laughs> yes. Of a spiritual. There again, it's just like, this is the. We, we do. We look at the physical. But you know what? Do you think 
that had God not given us physical things as analogies, would we understand the spiritual truth? We wouldn't. So we had to have physical nakedness and awareness of that in order for God to get through to us the concept that we need him to be our white garments. Do you think that part of this problem has to do with is it Jezebel that was, yeah, that she was the immorality person. Yeah. And does that have to do with the fact that we don't appreciate nakedness? Uh, not really, but she definitely led people to go astray. Jezebel is symbolic of a person who leads others astray right. into sin. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Point to spirituality, uh, righteousness. Yes, it does. Exactly. So let's get that down here. Um, the white garments, it, in fact, go to Revelation 19.8, somebody, and someone else go to Revelation 7.14. Let's read those two verses on white garments. 19.8 says, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay. And the righteous acts of the saints. Revelation, what is that one? 19. Okay. And now go to 714. 714 is, and I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Yeah. So it's the, basically then the white garments are the righteousness of whom? Of Jesus Christ, right? So the white garments represent the righteousness of Christ. And how do we attain the righteousness of Christ? Through faith, through believing in him, right? It's, it's understanding that it's his blood that makes our garments white, right? And puts garments upon us. Okay, the righteousness of Jesus. This is a mess down here, you guys. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, so this is uh, Revelation 7, 14, and also 19, 8. Okay, that's two of them, but there's so many others that you all looked at. We looked at so many scriptures that it, it was difficult. Um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, no. We can't see what you're writing up there, but I told her. I know you'll, you'll get it. Anyway. It's way neater yeah. on my chart, which you're going to get later. <laughs> okay, let's talk about that eye salve then. What is the eye salve symbolic of spiritually then for us? Um, we looked at 2 Corinthians 4 6. We also looked at a time. We looked at John 9, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 4. I mean, there was a bunch of verses we were looking at. Let's start with um, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Someone read that one. For God, for God who said, light shall shine. Yeah. It's a hard make sure, one. Make sure to you make can sure back I, up if you I, want to. I had to make sure I was on the right one. Yeah, and you can back up if you want. I think that actually she gave us three through six. And if you want to read the whole thing, that'll be okay too. <laughs> Which from three through from six. three through six, right. yeah. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, <clears throat> that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In the face of Christ. So have is actually then the knowledge of Christ. That's where light comes from. That's where our ability to spiritually see comes from, right? It's the knowledge of Christ that is the ISAP that we are to have. I'm going to write that in a blue pen so it shows up. Um, it's the knowledge of Christ. ISAB is the knowledge of Christ, and it that, and it gives and it gives us light. It gives us light, light to see by. Right? Without it, that's in Second Corinthians. We did. Uh, uh, is that four? Yeah. Uh, three to six. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is messy down here because it's so low. It's hard to write down there. Okay. So gold is faith. It's faith that's more precious than gold, right? White garments are the righteousness of Christ himself that we receive by his, his shed blood. And I said in this case, is to be the knowledge of Christ that gives your eyes light to see by, right? We looked in John chapter 9. That was a lengthy passage that we looked at. Let me look on it. See, page 86, I think. <laughs> okay. What did you see there? Two kinds of blindness. Okay, there were two kinds of blindness demonstrated. And the, the storyline is about a man who was blind, right? But he wasn't just blind. He was born blind. Tell me, think on that for five seconds. How difficult do you think it would be to give a person who is born blind sight? You can't, especially back in the days of Jesus, right? And so here's a story of a man. He, he, uh, Jesus passes by. He saw a, a man who was blind from birth. And in verse six, it says, and he had said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay out of the spittle and he applied the clay to the man's eyes. And he said to him, go wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam, which means in translation, sent. So it's the one who's sent, Right. And he went away and he washed and he came back seeing. Why do you think he came back seeing? Because he believed that, do, that doing it and he obeyed what Jesus told him to do. So by faith, he went and he believed what was said and he went. And when he did what he was told to do, he came back seeing. Now, this is, a, this is unbelievably huge in the storyline of, of these uh, gifts of healing that Jesus does it does in the book of John. John is loaded with all these supernatural signs that Jesus is the Christ that he's God come in flesh. And all the miracles that he performed are the witness that he was God. Okay. And so in verse 17, it says, and so they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, since this man, Jesus opened your eyes, what do you say about him? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and received sight. So now they're, they're mocking this man, saying, no, you were never blind. This guy's, are you kidding? I've been blind since birth. 
<laughs> and and he's until they called the parents and and of the very one who had received his sight and they questioned them saying is this your son who you say was born blind how then does he see now and his parents answered them and said we know that this is our son and we also know that he was born blind but how he now sees we don't know or who opened his eyes we don't know Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. <laughs> funny, funny story. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that Jesus was in fact the Christ, meaning Jesus is God come in flesh, if they did that, he would be put out of the synagogue. So they were afraid of persecution, of being exiled or cast out. So for this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man and had said, uh, who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Then he answered, well, whether he, Jesus, is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Now what is, what did Nicodemus say way back in chapter one about Jesus? I know that he is what? Come from God, because if he had not come from God, what? He could not do the miracles that he do, does. And so this is another one of those examples. If he actually was not Jesus, if he was not the Christ, if he was not God, he would not have been able to do this miracle. Nobody no trickster, no magician of that day, no one fabricating any kind of signs and wonders could make a blind man, not just a blind man, a man born blind to see again. This was, this was over the top. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, you did not listen. Do you want to hear it again? <laughs> You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> so he's kind of mocking them a little bit. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Again, this is exactly what was going on in, in uh, Philadelphia, uh, in Philadelphia, where the synagogue of Satan was saying to them, you're a liar. You're, God doesn't love you. God loves us. We're his chosen. Right? Pardon? Oh, no kidding. This is why this is why Kay had us read this passage. She said, this is the kind of blindness that the world who does not have the spirit of God, this is this is where they are. They will look at an absolute miracle right before their eyes and they will still deny that it could possibly be God. It, it does not make sense yeah. to you and I who have had our eyes open. If we have the knowledge of Christ, therefore our eyes are opened. We look at things around us and we see things totally different from the world. The unsaved world, their eyes are blinded. They think they're so rich and they have need of nothing. But Jesus says, you're all these things. And one of them is you're blind. Why? You don't even comprehend. You can't tell and you don't perceive that you have you have spiritual blindness. And then he says, we know that God's God. Then this man answered them, the, the, the Jewish man, the man who was healed. He says, 
Well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from. <laughs> because guess what? They're supposed to be experts in the law and experts on spiritual truth. And he says, you don't even understand where he's from. This surprises me. Well, this is, a, this is something else. Um, he is, boy, were his eyes open. Boy, I know. <laughs> no kidding. He had eyes open for sure in both ways. He says, we know. So he's basically going to say exactly what Nicodemus says back in chapter uh, three, right? We know that God does not hear sinners, but if he is God-fearing and he does his will, God hears him. So this man, although he didn't have the full picture yet, he had believed Jesus. Jesus healed him. This was a sign for this man to draw him into believing that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. So he, he took that journey. And not only that, but he stood his ground against the, the Jewish synagogue leaders. Yes, a baby Christian, right? Or a baby, whatever you want to call it, because it was before the cross, but still. He was a baby man of faith. And he stood up against the oppressors, the, Jew, the, the Jewish synagogue leaders. And he says, well, this is something else that you don't understand, that this man could not do this if he were not from God. And then he says, and Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who, who see may become blind. In other words, if you hold fast to this, I'm going to close your eyes and you will not see. That is scary. Uh, the New Living Translation says, uh, says this, Jesus told them, I entered this world to render judgment to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they see that they are actually blind. So that was our passage that Kay had us look at this week in um, page 86, okay? Katie, 30 minutes. We have 30 minutes, we're good. Well, I think we're doing good, no, maybe not, we got two pages. <laughs> All right, we'll move on, but we are doing well. I'm actually okay with this. All right, so the condition of Laodicea, let's finish it off over here. He says, I love this part about it, though, because although he's saying to them, this is what you need. You need faith, you need the righteousness of Jesus, and you need the knowledge of Christ. These are the things that you need. But he's saying to them, listen, I just want you to know something, because in this, what would you call this right here? Would you call that reproof? Would you call that a scolding? <laughs> Would you call this, I'm calling you on the carpet. I'm, I'm telling you, you've got to change. You've got to straighten up. You've got to fly right. You've got to, you've got to admit and confess what's true. So Jesus is doing this. So, But then he follows, there's a statement in verse 19. In 319, he says, what? Those whom I love. Isn't that amazing? Those whom I love, what? I reprove and discipline. So guess what? All of this is Jesus reproving and disciplining them. And he's saying about them what? I love you. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't be telling you this. I wouldn't be pointing this out. I love this part of the whole thing because even though this is a super strong um, warning and a, and a harsh conclusion about 
the state of this particular church and these people, that they are so prideful, they are so self-sufficient, they think they have need of nothing, and Jesus looks at them, you guys are pathetic, you're pitiful, miserable, you are lacking, you have no spiritual eyes, and you are, by the way, naked before me. And he says, but listen, I love you. If I didn't love you, I would not reprove you and I would not discipline you, but I'm doing it because I love you. And he speaks of them as being, you are lukewarm. Let's talk about that. Because that's another part of this particular area. What was the historical story on this? What did you learn about Laodicea concerning lukewarm? We had to get their water for somebody else. Yeah, they so sure did. Two two different cities sending them water. One right. is hot, one is cold, but when it gets there every time, it's just... It's just lukewarm. And by the way, also, remember we talked about the mineral com compound of the stones in that particular area? So what do you think that did to the water? Have any of you been to Johnson City and drank water? water. <laughs> Kathy's laughing. It is, it's pretty harsh. <laughs> But this place is 10 times worse. And I know this personally because I've been there and because I have drank their water. And I, guess what I did? I vomited, I literally, vom I threw up. Because, no, I didn't spit it, I, I threw it up. And everything else that was in my stomach. Fortunately, I hadn't eaten yet that day, but I accidentally drank it, brushing my teeth one morning, you know, without thinking. And I'm just, you know, doing my teeth. And we'd been in Turkey a long time by then. So I was used to the water and not worrying about it too much. And anyway, and, and it didn't really bother me much because I had acclimated. We had been there a long time. And so <laughs> brushing my teeth, you know, slush, 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 rinse, and then gulp drinking it down, all of a sudden I went, oh no, and literally in a nanosecond, I threw up right into the sink. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's just like what the Bible said. <laughs> I, and I am telling you that is so true. So here's what we know then, um, their water in that area is lukewarm. I have photographs over here of my children and I and my husband and I at Laodicea. It, it was in November. You'll see us in some of the photos wearing blue jeans and sweaters. So it was the cooler time of the year in Turkey. It never got super cold there, kind of like Texas weather. You know, it never gets super cold, but it gets cool. So I had like we do in, in November, December, wearing blue jeans and a sweater. And, um, but we also swam the whole time. This is one of my my kids' favorite places to go. It is current day Pamukkale, they call it, Cotton Castle. And you'll see when you look at the pictures of these great big basins, it looks like ice. And it's just flowing over because of all the strong minerals in the water. As the water flows down from the Heropolis, the city of Heropolis, which was just up the hill, walking, uh, almost walking distance from where we were. We ended up taking the car, but that was even dangerous because the roads were so bad um, and it was real difficult to get up. Then we drove to a certain point, parked our car and walked the rest of the way up. At the very top of the mountain, the Heropolis is hot, steaming, boiling, literally boiling water. You could take your eggs up there and put them in the little pools of water and you could boil your eggs, have your breakfast right there. That's how hot it was. I know, really amazing. Uh, we, would, we got up and as we walked around it, we rolled up our pants and took our shoes off to walk around in the midst of it. But you didn't dare put your feet in it because it was very, very hot. 
and my husband's trying to stick his toe. I've got a picture of him trying to stick his little <laughs> toe in that water, but no, it didn't stay there long. It was very, very hot. And those fountains that come down off that water up there were deep orange, almost brown, varying shades of greens. It was really loaded, but it was a little different chemical uh, chemistry to it because of the heat, right? Well, that water at Heropolis, the city of Heropolis, then flows down to Pamukkale, and that would be their warm water that they would use for bathing and cooking and all these other things. Cold water came from the city of Colossae. Did y'all study this? So Colossae is down, down the hill, probably 20, 25 minutes right in there. There was a certain place as we were heading up to Pamukkale, which is Laodicea, where there was like this bridge and the water was trickling down through there. It was beautiful. So we stopped to take a photo because it was a beautiful spot to take a picture with the kids. And that water, when you put your hand in it, it was literally ice cold. It was like so refreshing. And if, you'd, if it were summertime, you'd be down there splashing all day because it was really nice. But halfway in between is this place called Laodicea. And that's where the waters are lukewarm. They come down that mountain. By the time they hit there, their bath water temperature. So in the hotels and the accommodations that have become so popular, you can swim year round in warm waters. And it's beautiful. There, the, the, the lime deposits that flow over, they're bright white. And it looks like you're bathing in ice cubes, although it's not but it looks like it, it's so, it's just beautiful. So that's kind of the, the backdrop then to he's saying to them, you are lukewarm. And when he speaks about lukewarm, he goes on to define what lukewarm meant. What did he say? You are neither what? Hot nor cold. So the subject of hot and cold is related to the fact that they are lukewarm, right? Um, and did you look up the word lukewarm? It's 5513. This is interesting. Chilaros. What does it mean? Anybody remember? I bet you could take a stab at it. If you're going to bathe your kids, you want to put them in what kind of water? What kind of water do you bathe your babies in? Tepid. Yeah. That's funny. You're, you're so funny. You've been taking lessons. Yeah, I can hear everything. No, not really. I'm actually pretty deaf. I still have those ear tubes in from the, the hyperbaric chamber that I did. They mess up my ears a little bit. Okay, so you are neither hot nor cold. And then he says, because you are lukewarm, what? Spit you out of my mouth. Yep, I will spit you out of my, that's Jesus, mouth. Okay, so what is the, the exhortation then to these people concerning them being lukewarm? What must they do? Be hot or cold. Be either hot or cold. Either is good. 
Cold water is refreshing to drink. Hot water is great for sterilizing, boiling, cooking, right? But lukewarm water, particularly if you drink it and it's loaded with the minerals that, it, that this particular area had, what does it cause you to do? Vomit. Now, this is very interesting. When you look up that word, spit you out of my mouth, I looked that one up too. I will spit. This is number 1692. Did anybody else look it up? Emeo. I thought that was kind of a cute name. It means spew. Uh, vomit or throw up, of which all I did. <laughs> yes. One of my sources for lukewarm said spiritually it's fluctuating between torpor and fever of love. Okay. And torpor means lethargy. Yes. So being lethargic or being um, complacent, right? It's the idea of complacency. Okay. Um, so it's a very strong picture that God gave to this particular church and very well understood by the Laodiceans, right? Because of where they live. And then his response after that is, you are lukewarm. What does he want them to do? Two things. Be zealous, right? And repent. repent. Okay. Now, this is interesting because of what you just said uh, about the word for uh, lukewarm. Did you look up the word zealous? Okay, because zealous basically is exactly what you're saying there. It's, the, it's number 2206. And it means to burn with zeal to be heated or boil, and then it goes on to explain a variety of ways it could be that you would boil, boil with envy, with hatred, with anger, or it could be to boil in the pursuit of something that's good also. And hot, I did write down that hot was defined as zealous. Yeah, right. Yeah. To desire earnestly or to strive after. Now here's what's interesting though. What Jesus is not saying is that Cold is bad and hot is good. He's not saying that. He's saying actually hot and cold are both good. You, church, you are lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I'm about to throw you up. So I'm, nope. No, it would not. Because in the context of this church, is hot good? Is cold good? Yeah, they're both good. He's all he's saying is literally, I, uh, this is why I wanted you to see that uh, the definition right here, you are lukewarm, you are neither hot nor cold, meaning both hot and cold would be good. Be useful, be functional, be of value to me, right? Be hot or be cold. Both of those are good things. I just had one reference to the lukewarm that said it's basically spiritually unremarkable. <laughs> that I could probably identify with. Unremarkable. I think it's helpful too because he says, I wish that you were hot or cold. Yes. If cold was bad, he wouldn't say I wish you that's were right. cold. That's exactly right. Very good. I wish that you were hot or cold. Right? I'll put that on here. I wish that you were hot or cold. Which verse was that one? Was that 19? Uh, 15. 15. Oh, 15. Okay, I'm way up in there. Okay. 
that, so then he says to be zealous and zealous basically means to desire earnestly or to strive after. Again, earlier today, I was saying that about our faith walk and about people who love to serve the Lord. They get so busy serving the Lord, but they don't spend time with the love of their life, the love of their faith, right? And so if you, if you don't desire him earnestly and really strive after him, which means you need to dig into the word of God, you need to be in time of prayer, you need to be in fellowship with the other believers. And if you aren't striving after that, then you are lukewarm. You could, or you've lost your first love in the case of the, the church of Ephesus, right? All right, so now, what, how much time have I got? About 10 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. So now let's just talk about Jesus. These were really great. Um, who is Jesus to this church? Yeah, I love that. Now, this was an interesting thing. The amen. Now, what did it mean, the amen? Beginning of the discourse. You know, it's at the end, but they also said at the beginning. Okay. Statement, I'm about to tell you something true. Yeah. And, and when he uses the amen, uh, it's number 281. Which was interesting. A and B. And in A, it's, it says, at the beginning of a discourse. And B is at the end. So he's getting at the beginning. Or at the end of a discourse. I found something that was interesting. It says that when amen is said by God, it equals it is and shall be so. And when amen is said by men, it means so let it be. Okay, it is, it shall be. And so that's if God says it. And if men say it, what? It means so let it be. So let it be, which is why we pray that amen at the end of praying. When we finish praying, Lord, please let it be, right? And how can we be assured that God will let it be? What is the qual? Well, what's the qualifier when I pray and I say, Lord, this is what's going on. This is where I need your help. Please do this. Amen. How do I know he's going to do what I have prayed? If I'm praying according to his will. I mean, that's a whole other story. But yeah, so let it be would be, and, and that would be, if I'm in agreement with God, then it shall be. And God says it is and it shall be. Or it also is said it means truly. Surely. Uh, surely. Of, of, a <coughs> of a truth. Very good. Okay. Oh, Amen. Now, here's something interesting. Did you see the follow-on to that? The faithful and true witness. Did you separate that from the amen, or did you make it as one thought? It is one thought. It is one thought. It's the amen, the faithful and true witness, and then he also goes on and says, he is the beginning in the creation of God, right? In that statement. So here's, let's go back and look at it. the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation. Now, what happened for me is this. I separated them. I made it three points, right? Mm -hmm. 
But then when I got into the definition of the faithful and true witness, what did it actually qualify? The amen. <laughs> so you can make it three if you want, or you can make it uh, two, two, but you know, however you want to do it. The first inclination is to separate it. The amen, the faithful and true witness. I love this. So it's the amen, uh, the faithful and true witness, right? These two words, faithful and true, are qualifying this, that he's the witness, correct? Mm -hmm. So that's the major part of that statement is that he's the witness. And, and then it's, it's described how he is the witness. He's the faithful and true one. The amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, how, so how did you define those particular words? Let's do this. Faithful. Let's go faithful. You probably did a word study on that. True. A word study and then witness. And another word study, correct? Did I lose something? No. No. You did. Are you okay? You got it? Okay. Okay, so tell me your definitions on faithful. <coughs> Worthy of trust. Pardon? Worthy of trust. There you go. Worthy of trust. Faithful. It's number 4103. Worthy of trust. I also got sure and true, which is uh, the definition of the amen. There you go. Sure. The same thing as the amen. It, is, it shall be sure and true. There you go. Okay, so this is why I ended up going, oh, I almost wonder if that's actually just two things. He's the, he's the amen, the faithful and true witness, and then he's also the one that's the beginning. So however you do it, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt it to leave it separate, but anyway. The second one is true. I liked this one. What is the Greek transliteration? I wish Cynthia was here because this one was really cool. The, the transliteration for true number uh, 228. Do you know what do you know what the word is? Anybody got it? I don't know how to say it. Athenos. Or and what does that sound like to you? Authentic. <laughs> yeah, true is the authentic, right? Uh, how did you define it? Or how did your uh, word study define it for you? Mine says that which is not only the name, but the resemblance, but the real nature. Okay. The real nature. I like this. <laughs> um, it's the one who's in accordance with fact. Boy, that one in our world today, does that one ever need to be taught? Yes. Because there is, there is my truth, and then there's fact, according to so much that's out in the news today, right? There's, there, yeah, there's some facts out there, but that doesn't matter. My truth is something different. And what we're teaching the world through the media and through the, um, just the, I think it's really a brainwashing that's going on in our, in our world right now, is that 
there is something besides what's factual, beside what is true. Is and relative. it's truth is now relative. Truth is how you want it to be. It's what you think it is. So again, what do I always say to you about, about Bible study, inductive Bible study? What is it that I care about? I care about what does God say, right? Not what about, not what you think. And it's not that I don't care about you as a person, but I don't care what you think. I want you to show me where does it say what you're telling me in the word of God. If you can show me in the word of God that what you're saying is true and is fact, then I will listen to you. But if you just want to give me your opinion and your emotional feelings about things, those do not come into inductive Bible study because what we are doing is analyzing fact. And for us, fact is the truth. And what for us is the truth? God's word. So we're, where we start, where we begin as Christians is on the foundation. That's why we spend so much time doing word studies and parsing this all out. Why have we dug through this in the way that we have? Because this is truth. And if we, and if we don't have this, we're in trouble because we have no way of judging what is truly right and wrong, correct? But Jesus says to you, this is what you think. This is your thinking. I'm telling you, this is what's fact. This is a church that's dead because they do not have the faith, right? That, that's, that's been refined by fire, which means the cross. That faith has not been refined. They don't have garments, the righteousness of Jesus. They don't have the knowledge of Christ for their eyes have to give them light to see by. And for that reason, they are in darkness. They are deluded. They, what did we say? They can't comprehend. They cannot tell. And they don't even perceive what's true. Jesus says, I'm the amen. I'm the truth. I am the surely, right? I am the verily, verily, I say unto you, this is a truth. And he says, it, it is, it shall be true, surely, of a truth. As a faithful and true witness, the one who is true, it's in accordance with fact, it's what's real. And the only way, you, okay, I'm, I'm almost there, we're good. Thank you, though. Real preaching. Yes. Aren't they all three the same thing? They really, in a way. about creator and you don't start with the fact that God created the world well, yeah. is absolute truth, then you don't get all the rest of it. True. Although I would say, I would say that the last part that, that he is the creator from the beginning, it, it still, it really actually goes back to the I am. I am he who is, who was, and who, who uh, is to come. I think it really goes back to that. The one I always want to do is the John chapter one, and she did not take us there, but John chapter one, verses one to five, and then verse 14, it says, uh, the, um, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word well, I was, was with God. With God. I was, was with God in the beginning. And then you drop down to verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the one that became flesh that was the word? Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus was the word and the word is what? God. And he was in the beginning. So this is who Jesus is. He's God who was in the beginning. So that's why you have to have that last one, because that is the truth. And without that truth as your rock, as the foundation, everything else falls apart.
you have to believe uh, Hebrews chapter uh, six uh, or 11, 11, six says, you must believe that I am God, right? And that I am a rewarder of those that seek me. If you don't believe I'm God, then the rest of it won't fall in place for your eyes will still be blinded. You have to believe that God is, that Jesus is God. And that that triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, work together for our salvation. Right? Okay, so the last one is uh, the beginning. of the creation. This is our last one and we are done. So we've done pretty good. We've got most everything in here. Uh, we didn't talk about the fact that Laodicea had like 35 years prior to this writing, they had received letters also through, uh, I think it was Paul, right? That had run that circuit. He in chapter two and four of Colossians, uh, Laodicea is mentioned, and they are told at Colossae, to the letter to the Colossians, the Colossians were told, when you're done reading this, pass it on to those at Laodicea and Heropolis, which we talked about at the top of the hill where the boiling water was. Um, so, and these same qualities about Christ are also given in that book to the Colossians. That whole first chapter is all about God who did what? In uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 23, what did you learn about, about Jesus as being the beginning of the creation of God? Do, did you read that passage? Uh, tell me what you saw in 15 to 23. Jesus is the image of God. Yeah, Jesus is the image of, of God. Yeah, the invisible God. He is the invisible God made flesh. Right? And he's, it says, um, by him, what? All things were created. Isn't that amazing? So these are in Colossians chapter one. You can find it 15 to uh, 23, right? Mm -hmm. We should make those a little bit wider. Yeah. Quite whole things. Okay. And then um, I love this one. Somebody read Colossians 123 and we'll close. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I love that. Jesus is the hope of the gospel that's been proclaimed in all creation. That's who Jesus is. He is the hope of the gospel. He is that same gospel started all the way back in Genesis with Adam and Eve that I will send a seed, that seed will crush the head of Satan. Same seed that God promised to Abraham, right? And in Galatians chapter three, it says, and that seed is Christ. He says, he is the hope of the gospel that's been proclaimed. And in him, all creation is, is, uh, he, is he is proclaimed in all creation, sorry. Okay, so he is the hope of the gospel proclaimed in all creation. He is the hope of the gospel.
proclaimed in all creation. I like this one. This, this one can take you a lot of places too, right back to Romans or um, Colossians 1.23. All right. So that's who we have. He is the beginning of the creation. He's the faithful and true witness. He is the amen. He is Jesus. He's the one who's true. These are the ones they are deluded. This is what their mind thinks they are. But Jesus says, you need to come to me. I am the one who's true. I'm the one that is reality. I'm the one that's factual, right? And I'm the one who, by the way, was is the image of God. I'm God come in flesh. Uh, by me, all things were created by Jesus, by him, Jesus. All things were created. And Jesus is the hope of the gospel that's proclaimed in all creation. I love it. What a great study this was. And I, I hope that was sufficient, satisfying to you. Hey, well, one thing that I really like was on page 87, uh -huh. where it says that Jesus extend the hope to those in Laodicea. Yes. 18 through 21, all give hope to Laodicea. Yes, it does. Exactly. It's what it's one of the reasons I love that statement. Those whom I love, I repeat. Prove and discipline, and he's telling them, I love you. All you need to do is come to me to get the things that you actually need. You need you need faith in me, right? You need my blood to cover your nakedness. You need and you need ISAP. The only way you're going to get that ISAP is if you believe the, the gospel of the about Jesus Christ, who he is. By understanding he is God, he's I can see my little friend over here. Here you go. You can have those. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye, you guys. Cool. It was lovely. We'll see you next week for our final part one study. Okay.